we're going to be looking at Hosea over the coming months, um, which is a book in the Old Testament, a prophecy, and uh, always good to um, remind ourselves that we have the Bible, the whole Word of God. I suppose we spend quite a lot of time in the New Testament. It is good to um, uh, consider the whole Word of God, including these prophets of the Old Testament, that... um, There's so much riches and wealth here for us. Let's turn to Hosea and read together from chapter 1. Hosea chapter 1. Verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, son of Beeri, during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and during the reign of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord began to speak through Hosea, the Lord said to him, Go, take to yourself an adulterous wife and children of unfaithfulness, because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to Hosea, Call him Jezreel, because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of Israel. In that day, I will break Israel's bow in the valley of Jezreel. Gomer conceived again and gave birth to a daughter. And the Lord said to Hosea, call her Lo-Ruhamah, for I will no longer show love to the house of Israel, that I should at all forgive them. Yet I will show love to the house of Judah, and I will save them, not by bow, sword, or battle, or by horses and horsemen, but by the Lord their God. After she had weaned Lo-Ruhamah, Gomer had another son, and the Lord said, Call him Lo-Ami, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the Israelites will be like sand on the seashore, which cannot be measured or counted. In the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. The people of Judah and the people of Israel will be reunited and they will appoint one leader and will come up out of the land for great will be the days of Jezreel. Save your brothers, my people, and of your sisters, my loved ones. This is the word of the Lord. So I wonder, do you know what your name means? Interesting question. Graham, if you're interested, means, well, a couple of possibilities. It could mean from the Greylands, or possibly Gravelly Homestead. How romantic, I hear you say. One midwife tells of a couple who wanted to call their newborn Colin, but they wanted to spell it in a unique way. There's a lot of this nowadays, different spellings of words, isn't it? So they spelt it C-O-L-O-N. Colon. Mm. <laughs> well, the, law had, the Lord had some bizarre names up his sleeve for Hosea and Gomer's children, as we'll see. But that probably isn't the strangest part of this chapter. That has to be verse 2. And the Lord speaks to Hosea and says, Go take to yourself an adulterous wife. Well, actually, I have to tell you, the NIV is watering this down for us. I mean, if that isn't shocking enough, the word actually means prostitute. 
he's literally saying, go marry a whore. We're meant to be shocked. We start our series on uh, the prophecy of Hosea. As with all scripture, it is important. We have to ask two questions when we come to all of scripture. Before we ask the question, the second question is, what does this book mean for me today, for us today? But that's the second question. Because before we can answer that question, we have to ask another question. What, does, what did it mean back then when it was first written, first spoken to its original hearers and readers? What did it mean there? It's only when we ask that, answer that question, we can then go to the other question. To go straight to that second question is a forbidden shortcut. Um, and there's a lot of confusion caused, particularly with Old Testament prophecy, when, Old Test when people apply Old Testament prophets to today without first considering that original context. As Thomas Wolff put it, commentating on this prophecy, he says, prophecy addressed Israel in the midst of her history. Any attempt to comprehend prophecy apart from the historical events surrounding it would only lead to misunderstanding. So we have to try and understand a little bit of the background. Hosea was prophesying between 750 and 723 BC. That's uh, uh, getting on for uh, eight centuries before Christ. Uh, you may remember that uh, after King Solomon died, we had King David, we had King Solomon, and then the kingdom of Israel split into two. Uh, there was the, north, the southern kingdom called Judah, capital Jerusalem, and the northern kingdom, somewhat confusingly, still called Israel, which was based around the capital in Samaria. Now, Hosea is preaching over 200 years after this split. Initially, he's preaching during the reign of Jeroboam II, uh, uh, and... Um, that was a time, actually, it was a time of stability, a time of prosperity. Um, but that wasn't to last too long. That wasn't to last very long. Jeroboam II was of the dynasty of Jehu. He, was, he could follow his line back, line back to Jehu. He's mentioned in verse 4. Now, Jehu was, was not of the original line of the kings of that northern kingdom, he was spurred on, actually, by the prophet Elisha. You can read about this in 2 Kings 9 and 10. Uh, he was spurred on to rise against the dynasty of Ezel, evil King Ahab, the, whom you may well remember. And uh, as he did that, he caused the death of Ahab's widowed queen, the famous Jezebel. And this all happened at Jezreel. Um, and it was really violent, Je Jehu was a violent man. His power grab was bloody, probably far more violent than God had in mind or God would want. It was indiscriminate. It was way over the top. Moreover, having come to kingship, he then failed to lead the people away from the worship of the local Canaanite, Canaanite god Baal. And that was the very thing that Ahab and Jezebel had promoted that God was bringing judgment against them for. Uh, and subsequent kings in Jehu's line followed that same pattern down to Jeroboam II. And when Jeroboam II's reign ended, it ushered in uh, increasingly 
increasing political instability. The kingship frequently changed hands through assassinations and uprising. And also, this period saw the re-emergence of another threat, the threat from the spectre in the north, the cruel Assyrian Empire, who throughout Hosea's ministry begin to nibble away at the northern territories of Israel, the territories of the northern tribes. And Israel, disturbed by this, began to look finally, well, finally, they tried a few local alliances, and finally they looked to Egypt to support them, the, the, other local, the other superpower in the region, down to the south, southwest. Um, and that was uh, too much for Assyria. Assyria couldn't have them looking to Egypt for help, so Assyria swooped, lay siege to uh, Samaria in 723 BC before laying it low and carrying off the Israelites into captivity, into extra exile. And they resettled the land with foreigners. And by the New Testament days, we, we read about the Samaritans. While these people were the resettled people from somewhere else in the Assyrian Empire, had been resettled in this northern area. Now, as all this starts to play out, Hosea, listening to God as he is, he begins to see, he sees the Lord's hand in it all. Because despite the prosperity and the stability present at the start of Hosea's ministry, there was a huge problem with this northern kingdom of Israel. They were being unfaithful to their faithful God. They were running after other gods, specifically Baal, whose name will come up again and again. They were still play, playing lip service to the Lord. They were still undergoing certain rituals and public worship and all the rest of it. But all the time, uh, they were actually, their hearts were running off to Baal. And the result of this departure from obedience and worship to the Lord, or wholehearted worship to the Lord, could be seen all too clearly in, in the nation's life. We see this in the more, perhaps more dramatically, in the prophecy of Hosea's contemporary, another prophet called Amos. And if you read his prophecy, you'll see there the growing gap between rich and poor and how the poor are being oppressed and exploited. You see huge injustice specifically working its way out through the system of the courts. Injustice where there should be justice. We see sharp moral decline. All that is, is going on. Now, so often in scripture, the language used to describe that special covenant relationship between God and his people is the language of marriage. God uses the language, the image of marriage. In fact, that's not a coincidence. Marriage is specifically designed to point to God's commitment to us, his people. Um, so here, astonishingly, and very, very painfully for Hosea, God uses Hosea's own marriage to convey the pain that he, God, feels at Israel's betrayal. In, in chapter 3, verse 1, when we go on to chapter 3, we'll learn that Hosea's wife, not only was she a prostitute in some form or other, but she carried her promiscuity into her marriage. It's even possible because uh, we, we see um, the first child is specifically attributed to Hosea. The next two aren't. It's possible that those two children are actually fruits of her adultery. Um, we're not sure about that. So Hosea 
is not only preaching this message, he's living it in all its pain. And Hosea's astonishing act, as we get to chapter 3, of redeeming his adulterous wife, that is a striking picture, a portrayal of God, betrayed though he has been, determined, passionately determined to win his people back, prepared to go to extraordinary lengths to do just that. So with that background in mind, let's examine this first chapter. First of all, we have the bride, Gomer. The Lord said to Hosea, go take to yourself an adulterous wife children of unfaithfulness because the land is guilty of the vilest adultery in departing from the Lord. So he married Gomer, daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. Um, now some think here, some people think, well, obviously Hosea wouldn't go and marry a prostitute. That's rid uh, ridiculous. So he, the, the Lord is probably flagging up what Gomer will later do, that she's later going to betray him in that way. But I think it is more likely the case that Gomer is actually just caught up in the culture in which she was living. Like so many Israelite women of the time, she'd been caught up in the fertility rites of Baalism, the worship of Baal, the Canaanite Baal worshippers. They'd inhabited the land before Israel, and they thought, obviously they wanted their land to be fertile, they wanted crops, they wanted prosperity, and in order to persuade their local guard, Baal, to make them fertile, they had to kind of, you know, I don't know, show him what to do. Baal had his own consort in heaven, Asherah. And um, in order, they need to be encouraged by their worshippers to, to be fertile. And they would enact acts of fertility before their altars. In other words, they would have sex in the shrines, in the places where they worshipped Baal. Sex was used as a cultic act. And in order for that to happen, there would be male and female cult prostitutes operating at the shrines, ready to oblige. And sometimes, uh, so, and sometimes the young women of that time would be cult prostitutes. Other times they would be used, um, you know, encouraged by those around them to, to um, approach the cult prostitutes in order to make the land fertile. Now, when Israel, uh, sorry, I've gone ahead of myself there. When Israel came into the area, into that region, when God brought them there, far from banishing completely these ungodly practices, they had gradually been tempted to adopt them. Now, this, is, this seems bizarre to us, but we should watch our own hearts at this point. It wasn't that they had completely stopped believing in the Lord who'd led them out of Egypt. They would still would sing the songs, they'd still sing their songs very happily, waving their arms in the air or whatever they did, and they would look very spiritual when they gathered together. And yet all the time their hearts were going in the direction of these lo this local pagan god. It's like, it's, it was like a just-in-case thing. They kind of, rather than putting their whole faith in God, they were saying, well, you know, maybe there's something in this Baal thing, and we don't want to upset him. So we'll just kind of, you know, just-in-case, we'll hedge our bets. We'll give Baal a bit of our lives just to, you know, to curry favor. And of course, we're still worshiping Yahweh. 
but we, before we become judgmental of Israel, we have to examine our own hearts, don't we? Because aren't we tempted just to do exactly the same thing in all kinds of ways? We'll discuss that later in the series, I'm sure. Uh, this is what is called syncretism. It's when pagan religious practices are adopted alongside the worship of the Lord, Yahweh. Um, uh, and so in Hosea's day, this is the point, it wasn't unusual for young women to be engaging in sexual behavior around these shrines. And often they would take money for that. They'd be part of the prostitutes uh, there. Uh, and now, so it's quite likely, it seems, that Goma, growing up in that culture, and perhaps even being a victim of male sexual exploitation, that would not surprise us at all, would it? She is a child of a society which is guilty of the vilest adultery, going with other lovers, other gods, instead of saying, staying faithful to Yahweh. So she herself um, becomes a picture of what has happened in Israel. And so they have this first child, Jezre Jezreel, uh, verses uh, uh, four and five. Uh, uh, yes, four and five. Four, um, call him Jezreel because I will soon punish the house of Jehu for the massacre at Jezreel and put an end to the kingdom of Israel. Can you imagine this? Jezreel, incidentally, way back, it was the place of Gideon's great victory in the, in the days of the judges. So it had a glorious start in many ways, but it is also the place of Jehu's bloody massacre of Ahab's sons. Seventy sons of Ahab, was it, who were cut down, and all the people in, in Ahab's courts. Imagine calling a child after a massacre. Imagine calling a child Peter Lu, or Amritsar, or Shrebrenitsa. Can you imagine that? Now, later, uh, 733 BC, the Assyrians actually fought their way to the Valley of Jezreel, and, uh, uh, and that was just before they lopped off a huge chunk of the northern ter territories. Jehu's violence was judgment against Ahab, but now the judgment is coming on Jehu's line. That's the point, because he hadn't put right the thing that Ahab was being judged for. And so judgment would come on his line too. We have the second child, Lo-Ruhama. Rahim is quite a common name in um, uh, uh, um, some, uh, Semitic speaking circles. Um, uh, it's, from, it's from this root, mercy, uh, love, pity. And so Lo-Ruhama means no pity. No mercy, no love. Now, God has always been extending mercy and love to his people. And now he's saying, no more. Israel is sh fighting shy of this wonderful relationship uh, she has with the Lord, stubbornly going against God's way. Any relationship has to be two-way, doesn't it? You cannot go on trying to relate to someone who is absolutely stubbornly refusing to relate to you. And so God's judgment will be to give them what they seem to desire. He's not going to go on and on offering his love, offering his forgiveness. Sooner or later, he's going to turn his face to the wall. 
That's a dreadful, dreadful thing, isn't it? This whole book comes from the very heart, from the very guts of God's passion for his people to turn, to return to him. And the greatest judgment of all is when he stops sending that passionate message and just allows them to go. The very fact that he's speaking out this message now gives them the opportunity to return. There is hope of deliverance here. Interestingly, he says there is only hope for the, for the southern kingdom, Judah. Uh, and that will only come through trusting in God, not in military might. But that's not the end of the story either. But then there's this third child, Lo Ami. Not my people, that's what this means. When God prepared to bring Israel up out of Egypt, he said to them, I'll take you as my own people. I will be your God. And this is a, a phrase that's repeated um, throughout the Bible. Uh, I will be your God and you will be my people. Uh, but now God's patience is running out. I wonder how you view God. You know, it's not unusual I think our tendency is to view God aloof and detached. After all, he's, he's glorious, he's majestic, he's, he's just awesome beyond our imagining. And because of that, we tend to view him aloof and detached, solidly impassive and unmoved. Well, I think this book of Hosea simply will not allow us to view him like that. It portrays God, the faithful husband, betrayed by his unfaithful wife, despite all he's done for her. Does he care about that? Does he feel the pain of that? Of course he does. Can you imagine? Imagine someone who learning of their spouse's unfaithfulness, adultery. Can you imagine them just saying, oh, well, I suppose that's fine. Each to their own, that's fine, and just walked away, cool as a cucumber. Can you imagine that? Would that be right? It wouldn't, would it? There'd be something very, very worrying about that response. God is passionate for his people. He loves them absolutely passionately. And thus his anger burns passionately when they remain unfaithful. And yet, this isn't the end of the story. Because even here in chapter 1, we have a returning. This first chapter is actually like an overture. The overture of a great uh, symphony laying out the main themes. Uh, the, and the whole book... Uh, follows this line, really. The whole book is an impassioned cry to God's people to return to him. But it's also a declaration in the face of their unfaithfulness that God, who has promised, who has committed himself to them, he will somehow, somehow, remain faithful to his promises. As Elizabeth Achtemar has said about this book, God promises to do what human beings ought to do, but cannot. That is, stay faithful. He's going to do that. Details here are limited. We get, don't get details here. But 
there is a going to be a returning. In verse 10, he invokes the promises given to Abraham, going back to Genesis 22. The promises go back before that, but in Genesis 22, particularly mention of the uh, you and your descendants uh, as make you, you and your, descend your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. And we get that image here. In verse 11, we see, remember those spl that split kingdom of well, Judah and Israel are going to be brought back together again under one leader, under a great leader. And in 2.1, the, um, the uh, curse of those dreadful names is reversed. And so he says, uh, verse 11, great will be the day of Jezreel. All those negative associations of Jezreel, the place of massacre. Uh, well, instead, Hosea starts to invoke positive associations. Jezreel means God sows. God sows. He talks about coming up out of the land. Uh, that seems to have the sense not so much of coming, uh, a people coming up out of the land as springing up out of the land, like a crop springing up, fertility. A great harvest to come, that's the point. You know, the Israels chased after Baal in order to guarantee fertility, you know, hedging their bets. <laughs> Trying to get prosperity on what they perhaps thought, just in case it is Baal's patch after all. But you know what? Baal doesn't exist. Prosperity, fertility, the things we need to live, they come from one place alone. Yahweh himself, the one true God. But how can God do this? How can God maintain his faithfulness when his people continue to be unfaithful? How can he even do as he promises to do in the Old Testament, give them a new heart so that they can be faithful? How can God do what these people seem, seemingly cannot do? Well, there aren't details here. But his intention is declared that this is what he's going to do. But that raises questions for us, and they're difficult questions. How should we apply this book for us today? This is, what does it mean for us as we read? The second question. You might even say, should we even bother trying? Because after all, this was addressed to Israel, not us, back in the 8th century BC. Well, the first thing I'd want to say on that is that the whole point of God's people Israel and his relationship with them is not that God didn't care about the rest of the world, is that he was raising Israel up as a light to the nations to show them something about how humankind should relate to the person who made them. They're to have that paradigmatic relationship, be a, 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 an example, <coughs> an illustration, an example of to model the kind of society that actually God created all humans to enjoy. So it's not surprising to find, actually, as we read these chapters, they will helpfully critique our own society and where it is going awry. And we'll read it and we'll think, you know, well, that sounds a little bit too close to home. A prosperous nation characterized by immorality, injustice, Descending into fragmented and chaotic political leadership. Does that sound at all familiar to you? 
we shouldn't be surprised, given our own land's stubborn determination to stop listening to the Lord and to go after other gods. But what about Israel? Israel made, uh, God made promises to Abraham and his descendants. How will God honor his promises? Well, Hosea may not flesh out the details. As with all Old Testament prophecy, and this is something else we have to live with, there is an unresolved tension. It produces in us. We're not at the end of the piece of music yet. Um, we who read with New Testament spectacles on, we can look ahead. We can see how that tension begins to be resolved. When we do that, we might be surprised to see how it starts being resolved. For instance, these verses are referred to in 1 Peter chapter 2. Uh, and uh, the verses later on in chapter 2 of Hosea also. Uh, 1 Peter says there, Peter is writing, he says, once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. He's invoking lo ami. Once you had not received mercy, lo ruhama. Now you have received mercy. Now the, uh, uh, P- Peter is writing to God's, as he calls them, God's chosen people, God's elect, uh, scattered throughout the Roman provinces in what we call Turkey today. These were those gathering in the name of Jesus Christ in this area. And that would be a mixture, a real mixture of the Jews, Abraham's physical descendants, and Gentiles. People grafted in, brought in to, the, to, to God's kingdom. Uh, brought in, moreover, to God's promises to Israel through faith in Christ. Now, that includes most of us here who are not um, uh, physically descended uh, from the Jewish, uh, in the Jewish line. This includes us. Now, these words are a deliberate invocation of Hosea chapter 2, verse 1, and uh, also later on in Hosea chapter 2. These words addressed to a people who would be removed, the northern kingdom, and scattered. Unlike Judah to the south, those northern tribes never really rediscovered their identity, at least not yet, I should say. But we see in 1 Peter the possibility of God's promises being to Israel being opened up not only to scattered Israelites as they turn and put their trust to Christ in Christ. There is, there, there is no way the Lord's promises to Israel can be fulfilled outside of Christ. It cannot happen. But opening up... Um, Uh, But there is, as they turn and put their trust to Christ, and we should really be praying earnestly for that, shouldn't we? For those descended in the line of Abraham, those physical Jews, um, uh, um, ethnic Jews, if you like, however you want to describe that. Of course, we should be praying passionately and supporting people like Tom and Laurie who have that, uh, Tom and Laurie, Tom and Esme, Laurie, (laughs) Have that passion to go and take God's good news of the Messiah to God's people who have not seen how he's going to bring his promises to land in them. Of course we should be praying. And we should be expecting to see God work among them. 
And the prof uh, prophecies like this should always impel us in that direction to pray. But also we see to those who were born foreigners to the promise, Gentiles who through Christ can be grafted in and inherit the promises. And that is glorious for us, for whom it is true. But if we inherit the, uh, the promises, friends, brothers and sisters, if we inherit the promises, then we stand under the shadow of the warnings too, don't we? Woe betide us if we don't hear the warning. And that is quite simply, there is no room for sharing a part of our heart with other gods. There is no room for any form of idolatry, for putting other gods, other interests, and, and you know, we're not talking about Baal. We're not talking about what you might think of um, as a, a god. But anything, any interest, any, any other person, if we are putting them alongside the Lord, they become a god to us. Even if it's just to hedge our bets. Not at all. And we do that in our society. We hedge our bets. We like to put our trust in our bank balance or our career. Or we like to build our little empires in our, in our homes and gardens. Or whatever it might be. Or we look with longing eyes to the cult of the celebrity. Or we try to find meaning and purpose and excitement by running after um, drink and drugs and sex and all the rest of it. These things become gods to us. Sport, I should mention sport because that one's very close to my heart. Sport, when we start living, you know, living day to day on, on the result of our team, when that affects our mood drastically, something is wrong. Again, speaking to myself. We've got to watch out for these things. As we read this book, hear the passion of God's heart for his people to return to him, to stay faithful, to give up those little gods that are actually empty and powerless, no gods. They cannot deliver. Whatever it is you've got your eyes on, you know, whatever it is competing for your attention alongside the Lord, it or he or she cannot deliver. What only the Lord can. And so to be committed in faithfulness to one husband. That's the call. And when we know we've not been faithful, as we often do, what then? Well, as we turn, God holds out his hands in mercy. Where there is no mercy, there is mercy. When we turn, there is a way back. That's how much he loves us. You know, when people are betrayed in their marriages, they can feel all, all sorts of things. They can feel anger. They can feel jealousy. They can feel belittled. Sometimes they often, well, often they feel shame. You know, because God is so passionate about us, he moves beyond all those things and determines to redeem a people for himself whom he will not only forgive, but it will also work to transform, to enable us to live faithful to him. That is his beating heart. That is what he's passionate about. Oh Lord, give us the same passion for you, we pray. Amen.
Father God. We do. We hear, the, we hear your passion behind these verses. We're going to hear it more and more. It's not a little thing to you when we start wandering in the other direction. It's not a little thing to you when we take our eyes off you and start filling our hearts with those other stuff, that other stuff. That hurts you deeply. Thank you, Lord, that you are so patient with us. Thank you, Lord, for your passion for us. Your passion for us is so much greater than our passion for you. That seems wrong because you are so great and we are so small. But it's so often true. Oh, Father, fan our hearts into flame with love for you, with a love that is committed and faithful. And for those who perhaps don't understand this, who are on the outside of this relationship, Lord, you are passionate for them to join in, to be joined to you. To not rely on those little gods who cannot deliver. But to have their hope in one true God who will bring salvation. In Jesus' name we pray.